Good morning. We'll be in Colossians chapter 2 this morning. My name is Rex Blackburn. I'm just one of the members here at Emmanuel Church. Uh, We're happy that you've joined us this morning. And um, once we get to Colossians chapter 2, I'll open with a word of prayer, and then we'll get started. Let's pray. Father, you, you have forgiven us of sin. We do admit we are sinners. We don't hide that fact. We acknowledge it openly. And we ask for your forgiveness for sins of the heart that we still carry with us. God, this morning, as we open your word, we hope that you will cleanse our hearts with your word. You will restore to us joy and peace through the salvation that you offer. God, bring us clarity this morning in the way we think about Jesus. It's in his name that we pray. Amen. Amen. Well, about four years ago, there was a pretty big controversy in the evangelical world. A prominent pastor, a very prominent pastor actually, uh, said something that made quite a few people upset. I was one of those people. This pastor was so prominent that at the time his church was the second largest church in America, second only to Joel Osteen's Lakewood Church in Texas. He was preaching through a sermon series addressed to people specifically who had walked away from the faith because of something they read in the Bible or something they learned about the Bible. He said, this pastor did, about this series, Quote, many have lost faith because of something about the Bible or something in the Old Testament in particular. Once they could no longer accept the historicity of the, New, of the Old Testament or go along with all the miracles or stories or the Genesis creation myth, once all that went away, their faith came tumbling down like a house of cards because they were taught that it's all true. And if one part of it is untrue, then the whole thing comes tumbling down. And that is not the case. End quote. He said that if you walked away from Christianity because something in the Bible seemed outlandish to you or unbelievable, you might have walked away from Christianity unnecessarily. Now, by this pastor's own admission, his church exists to be a church that unchurched people love to attend. That's his mission behind his ministry, which reaches tens of thousands of people every week. And no, I'm not going to say the name, so just let me end the suspense there. So he's reaching out to people who might be skeptical about the Bible, and specifically skeptical about certain stories in the Old Testament. He made reference several times to the creation account, the story of Jonah, and others like it. Nothing wrong with reaching out to skeptics. Nothing wrong with that at all. But here's, here's how he chose to go about it. This is the statement that got him into a lot of trouble. Quote, in the book of Acts, chapter 15, the church leaders at the Jerusalem Council church leaders who understood better than we ever will, these church leaders unhitched the church from the worldview, the value system, and all the regulations of the Jewish scripture of the Old Testament. Not just how a person becomes a Christian, they unhitched the church from the entire thing, the whole worldview, end quote. So I don't know if you caught that. That's a very big statement. This pastor, prominent pastor, tens of thousands of people, evangelical pastor, says that in the New Testament, the believers have been taught to unhitch the Old Testament. Not just how you become a Christian, 
the entire worldview of the Old Testament should be unhitched from modern Christians. That's a radical statement. So in an attempt to keep Christianity relevant, which is what's happening here, this pastor has just, his words, unhitched the first three quarters of your Bible. He said, you don't need that anymore. Not just for becoming a Christian, the whole worldview of those 39 books is bunk. Now, how do we make sense of this? What do we do with that? Well, here's what's happening. A 21st century pastor in 21st century America, I'm listening to this through my modern, sophisticated technological device, has just peddled a 2,000-year-old heresy. See, it's just reheated Marcionism is the name of that heresy. Marcion was somebody who lived in the mid, early and mid-100s, 2,000 years ago. And he taught that the Old and New Testaments were so different that the Old Testament should just be thrown out. See, that was said in, what, 150? And in 2018, there's nothing new under the sun. You see, old heresies don't just typically disappear because human nature doesn't change. Instead of disappearing, these heresies often just lie dormant until culture, human sinfulness, and prevailing worldly wisdom sort of coalesce to make an environment that's ripe for that heresy to rear its ugly head in some new, subtly different form. And so, that phenomenon, that story, kind of gives us a, a guide in discussing the heresy that was present in Colossae. We'll frame our discussion under three headings. First, we'll just look at the Colossian heresy itself. Second, we'll look at Paul's response to the Colossian heresy. And then finally, we'll just look at some points of application for us and kind of how this applies to us today. So, first, let's look at the Colossian heresy itself. Our passage is in Colossians chapter 2. Again, we're going to start in verse 16. Okay, so Colossians 2, 16. Let's read our passage. Therefore, Paul says, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink or with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. These are a shadow of things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. Let no one disqualify you, insisting on asceticism and worship of angels, going on in detail about visions, puffed up without reason by his sensuous mind, and not holding fast to the head, from whom the whole body, nourished and knit together through its joints and ligaments, grows with a growth that is from God. If with Christ you died to the elemental spirits of the world, why, as if you're still alive in the world, do you submit to regulations? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch, referring to things that all perish as they're used, according to human precepts and teachings. These have indeed an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body, but they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. Guys, I don't know if you can do anything about this, but it's kind of ringy up here, so that's immediately better. Thank you so much. So first of all, let's look at this heresy. So it can be tricky to identify the root of this heresy. Usually, when we think about heresies that have existed in the history of the church, we can quickly and easily identify kind of what's being talked about here. So for instance, the one we just talked about, Marcionism. Early heresy, it's clear what's being taught there. Old and New Testaments are so different. Really, Marcion taught that the gods of those two Testaments were so different, we've really got to unhitch the Old Testament from the New Testament. Uh, Arianism, 
If you know your church history, that'll be a familiar term for you. Uh, Arianism was an early, one of the earliest heresies of the, new, of the, the early church uh, that claimed, Arius claimed that Christ was not an uncreated being. Christ wasn't God. Christ was instead created by God, the first of God's created beings, but created nonetheless. And so therefore, the deity of Christ is what's at stake with Arianism. Uh, in a quick class this morning, Unitarianism was mentioned, which is a heresy that clearly attacks the Trinity, um, that says that, no, 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 we don't have three separate persons in one God with Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. We instead have one God who maybe manifests himself in different ways. So what about the Colossian heresy? It's not quite as clear as these other heresies that I've just mentioned. And so we kind of have to piece together the puzzle pieces to make sense of what this heresy looks like. And I'll say this, Alex has alluded to the Colossian heresy several times in this series on Colossians. Nowhere in the Bible do we get a better picture of what the Colossian heresy taught than right here in our text. So if we want to know what was the heresy that was afoot in Colossae, then we need to go to chapter 2 in our passage. So, um, what we have here is we, we have to kind of piece together the ingredients of this heresy from what we get in our passage because we don't have any writings of the Colossian heretics. What do we have? We have Paul responding to the Colossian heretics. So it's sort of trying to put together a conversation by just hearing one side. So if you, if you have a friend or family member that's on the phone with somebody, you're kind of guessing what the other person is saying based on this person's reactions and you're kind of extrapolating, that's what we're doing this morning. Um, so we kind of get the symptoms described, but not necessarily a title for the disease. So we have to kind of put that together. So let's look at the ingredients. Um, we see early in the text, food, drink, festivals, new moons, Sabbaths, asceticism. Here's an interesting one. Worship of angels, visions, sensuality, regulations, an appearance of wisdom, a promotion of severity and asceticism. So how do we take all of those and kind of piece them together and make sense of what's going on here? Because there are several different ingredients there. Well, there's three components that we can identify that are taking place here. Uh, there may be more, but there's not less than these three. First, we know that there's a Jewish component to this heresy. Okay, so you see that in verse 16. Paul says, don't let anyone pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink regarding a festival, new moon, or a Sabbath. These are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. Now, if you know your Old Testament well and you haven't unhitched it, then you'll notice that those things are God-given commands from the Old Testament law. So Sabbaths, festivals, so you may remember like the Feast of Booths or the Feast of Trumpets, these different feast days and festivals that were part of the Old Testament law. And when Paul does respond to this, he responds to it using kind of shadow substance language, which we'll talk about later. So these things are just shadows pointing ahead to Christ, the substance of what these things signify. And this is a common way that the New Testament deals with Old Testament stuff. So we're thinking, okay, there's some sort of Jewish scripture, Old Testament component to this heresy. So, with most heresies, this is the case, these people aren't just making things up. That's what's scary about heresy. If someone came in just saying random things off the top of their head, everyone's going to know, okay, there's nothing here. Heresy clothes itself in Scripture. Heresy arises out of the church. It doesn't come in from outside the church. That's what's scary about it. And so whoever these people are, they're working with some Bible passages. Paul even implies the legitimacy of these commands in this passage because let's not forget, these things, Sabbaths, feast days, 
food and drink regulations, they were, in the Old Testament, commanded by God. But the Colossian heretics distort these commands, ignore the proper context of these commands, and then overburden the consciences of sincere believers by passing judgment on them because they don't live up to these Old Testament commands. So there's a Jewish component, an Old Testament component to this. Second, there seems to be some sort of human component to this as well. We see the phrase man-made religion, human precepts and teachings. So you see that in verses 22 and 23. There's a syncretism happening, sort of a synthesis happening between Jewish regulations, so legitimate God-given commands that are just taken out of context, and then human made-up additions to those commands. So you see multiple times the issue of asceticism comes up in this passage. Asceticism is just a word that means severe self-discipline, more like punishing yourself, starving yourself. Um, Actually, you'll still see this in more Eastern forms of Catholicism, where adherents will whip themselves and physically punish themselves in various ways, trying to uh, purge their sin or show their penitence for their wrongdoing. So there are man-made regulations. You're not allowed to eat this. You're not allowed to touch that. We assume these are separate from the Jewish regulations because Paul uses language here that doesn't sound like he's talking about the Old Testament scriptures. Human precepts, human teachings, self-made religion. These aren't words that are typically used in the New Testament to talk about the Old Testament. The New Testament shows reverence for the Old Testament in that it is God's word, it's God's commands, but we're in a different context now. That's not how Paul talks about these human man-made additions to the Jewish scriptures. So we have a Jewish component to the heresy, a human component to the heresy, and then you have kind of this wild card component that shows up, uh, sort of a mystical mysticism bent. So there's an odd spiritualism or mysticism about this. There's the worship of angels. Going on in detail, it's interesting that that detail is included, going on in detail about visions that these heretics are having. Puffed up by his sensuous mind. Actually, in that place right there where it says his sensuous mind, that pronoun, that singular pronoun, his sensuous mind, has called some commentators conjecture whether there's just kind of one main person that's stirring up trouble here, Um, but we're not clear on that. In summary, while we might not be able to put our finger on exactly what this heresy was, we can at least recognize these three components. It seems that Paul's final explanatory statement of this heresy is helpful. In that last paragraph, he says, it's a religion with an emphasis on the self, appearing wise because of its severe practices, but ultimately useless in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. Interesting point to note here. Paul's metric for success and failure here is the ability of a religious principle to stop the indulgence of the flesh. So if your religion, if your spirituality, doesn't lead to a stopping of the indulgence of your flesh, it is insufficient. Those who are Christ have crucified the flesh with its affections and its lusts. So two, Paul's response. So that's kind of what we can make of the heresy. It's kind of got those three components, Jewish component, a man-made component, and then sort of this mystical bent that's at play as well. Second, how does Paul respond to this? Well, Paul's primary response is a focus on Christ. 
And we don't see that just in this chapter. We see this in the book of Colossians as a whole. If you're familiar with the book of Colossians, one word is going to come to your mind when you think about Colossians. Someone mentions Colossians, if you've read it before and you're familiar with it, you're going to think Christ. Uh, because that's really what the book of Colossians is about, the centrality of Christ. We get that from the opening chapter all the way to the end of the book. So if we understand nothing else about the Colossian heresy, the mere content of the book as a whole should tell us this. Whatever else it did, it made little of Christ. The Colossian heresy threatened the centrality and supremacy of Christ in the Christian life. D.A. Carson, foremost New Testament scholar, said this, Whatever else we know, we know that this heresy detracted from a high Christology. It made Christ seem smaller. It made Christ of less importance to the Christian. So think about it. Paul takes up his pen, figuratively, to combat this heresy that's afoot in Colossae. How does he go about it? What does he write a letter about? He writes a letter about Christ. He makes much of Christ. Show these wayward, immature Christians that Christ and their union with him is at stake in this heresy. If the Colossian Christians had been thinking rightly about Jesus, they wouldn't have fallen into this mistaken way of thinking about the Christian life. So let's look at some of the specific ways Paul responds here. We'll just kind of track through the passage a few specific ways that he responds. First, from the very opening statement in verse 16, Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you. Later, he's going to say in verse 18, Let no one disqualify you. This is interesting. It's interesting to note the way in which Paul frames this response to the heresy. He says, Don't let anyone pass judgment on you. Don't let anyone disqualify you because they insist on these things. In verse 20, he asks them, why are you submitting to these regulations that these people are giving you? Do you hear how the threat of this heresy is external to the believer? Paul says, don't let anyone disqualify you. Don't let anyone pass judgment on you. Don't submit to these regulations. So he's not just warning them about something that they have come to believe. He's warning them about how they respond to these extra-biblical expectations of others around them. In fact, Paul refers to this a few verses earlier. See to it that no one takes you captive. A few verses before that, he says, I say this in order that no one may delude you. So imagine these young, young in the faith, relatively immature believers at Colossae in Asia Minor in the first century, one or a few people start talking about visions that they're having. And they're not telling anyone to forsake Christ, but they are passing harsh judgment on those young Colossian believers, these little lambs, for their laziness and not adhering to these regulations of what they can eat and touch and handle. So they disqualify these genuine, immature believers, maybe even disqualifying, maybe even casting down on the fact that they're believers at all. And what happens? The sensitive conscience of a young Christian is inappropriately weighed down. And that can lead to discouragement. That can lead to divisiveness in the body. And not because they're actually displeasing Christ. What sin have they committed? No, it's because that they have run afoul of the unbiblical expectations of others. So Paul says, don't let anyone pass judgment on you. Don't let anyone disqualify you. John Calvin's take on this. He says, observe of whom Paul is speaking. 
Namely, those who didn't openly reject or deny Christ, but instead, not really understanding his office and power, sought out other means of salvation and were not firmly fixed in him. Should anyone call us elsewhere than to Christ, let us bid him farewell. So that's one way that Paul responds. Number two, he says these are only shadows, not substance. So he says that in, in, with this first group of Jewish regulations. Don't let anyone pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. These things are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. So in this point, Paul is specifically responding to the Jewish element of the Colossian heresy. And without going into detail in each one of these things, feasts, food and drink regulations, Sabbaths, new moons, we can say generally these things were given by God to point forward to a future reality. And the entirety of that future reality is bound up in Christ. So Paul says Christ is the body, and these old covenant observances were merely the shadow. So if it's too dark or you're too nearsighted to see an object or a person, then you can learn a lot by looking at a shadow, right? So if there's, a sh there's an object over there, there's a shadow on the ground, you can see the general shape of something, but you don't get the clear kind of HD clarity of looking at the object or the person themselves. But how foolish to try to judge someone's appearance from their shadow when the person himself is right before your eyes to look at. So that's Paul's point here. Christ has come. Christ is here. Don't look at this blurry sort of general representation of, Christ, of what Christ is going to be. Christ has come. We know what Christ is about, what he thinks, what he says, and you are still trying to know him and enjoy him merely by his shadow. So he says, don't let people pass judgment on you. These things are only shadows. They're not substance. Paul also brings up in verse 19, let's keep reading, let no one disqualify you, insisting on asceticism and worship of angels, down to verse 19, and not holding fast to the head, from whom the whole body, nourished and knit together through its joints and ligaments, grows with the growth that is from God. He also says, this isn't just one or a few troublemakers that are at stake here. This damage will be church-wide. You can't do damage to the head without damaging the whole body. You sever the head, the body's done. So Paul says that this isn't just a problem with the heretics themselves. This threatens the unity of the entire church. So this is a point that not many commentators make on this passage, but I think it's a valid one. Because Paul goes there in the next verses. In chapter 3, Paul's going to tell them to put off certain vices and to put on certain virtues. And the nature of each of those virtues is on their mutual virtues, so in chapter 3, it's going to be full of one another type commands. Put on compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, patience. You see, each of these virtues are interpersonal in their nature. You're patient with people. You're kind to people. He says we bear with one another, we forgive one another, we admonish one another. And above all, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. You hear that? That being bound together in harmony language sounds similar to the language we see in our text, that knit together and nourished sort of language. So I think what Paul has in mind here is that this heresy doesn't just threaten individual believers in their communion with God. It therefore threatens the unity of the body that Christ died to unite. 
Christ promises that the body will be one even as he is one. And that knit togetherness of the body, that the, the knit together through joints and ligaments, that metaphor Paul uses, that growth that the body experiences, therefore, is threatened by this heresy. So Paul responds by saying, listen, this, this contributes to malnourishment in the body, division, not growth. So Paul's not just concerned that individual Christians are being bamboozled. He rightly sees that the unity and growth of the whole church is at stake. Two more, in, two more kind of individual things that Paul says. This one's sort of an implied command, but look at verse 20. If with Christ you died to the elemental spirits of the world, why, as if you're still alive in the world, do you submit to regulations? Sort of an implied command there. He's asking a question, sort of a rhetorical question, but there's a command hidden in there, and it's don't act like one who's alive to the world. Christian, you have died with Christ to the world, so why are you still submitting to worldly regulations? Now, this is interesting. Paul equates these sort of hyper-religious regulations to worldliness. Something did go wrong. So Paul equates these stringent, hyper-religious regulations to worldliness or being alive in the world. Now, I don't know about you, I don't tend to see a relationship between religious regulations and worldliness, right? I think of worldliness as sort of license, lasciviousness, and religious regulation on the other side. Paul doesn't necessarily see it that way. Paul says, if you're dead to the world, why do you submit to regulations? So some commentators assert that Paul even goes a step further than this and equates these strict regulations to demonic activity. That although these rules are human traditions, demonic activity is really what's at work here. And there's some context here. Just five verses previous, Paul is talking about how Jesus made an open show of the demonic forces at the cross. So it's not like demonic activity is totally out of context here. And, and they're pointing to that phrase, elemental spirits of the world. Um, there's some sort of complex Greek play that they do to say, well, I think this is actually demonic activity. And I don't mean to belittle that. I think that could be uh, a, a real interpretation there. But that's not our concern. Whether Paul is thinking about worldliness or demonic activity, or both here, we know that he takes these regulations very seriously. Do not handle, do not touch. But why? Well, Calvin again. John Calvin says on this point, to abstain from eating or touching a thing is in itself harmless. So to abstain from eating something, to abstain from touching something, that's harmless. But the obligation to abstain is pernicious because it annuls the grace of Christ. So there's no problem if someone wants to abstain from something. But if they are obligating other Christians to abstain from something that Christ has not commanded them to abstain from, that is pernicious, it's insidious. Because now my merit with Christ is based on my submission to regulations that Christ never gave me. Lastly, ultimately Paul says these conditions are useless in stopping the flesh. On the contrary, one of the most dangerous manifestations of the flesh is in our natural belief that we can earn merit with God by our law-keeping. So how are we to defeat our flesh 
by feeding its native impulses. I can be good enough. I can do well enough. I will please God by showing him that I'm a good boy or a good girl. That's a native reflex of our flesh. How are we to defeat the flesh by feeding that impulse? Our flesh puts into our mouths the words, I am sufficient. Yet, we discover over and over that we're not good enough. Our hearts are fickle. Our hearts are deceptive. And Paul says, you're going to triumph over this fickle, deceptive flesh you have by not eating something or not touching something? Useless. They're of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. So we've seen the heresy itself. We've seen how Paul responded to this heresy. Finally, how does all this apply to us? So the Colossian heresy seems pretty far removed from our context. It doesn't seem like those beliefs, worship of angels, asceticism, etc., would be very persuasive for enlightened 21st century modern American Christians. But whatever the particular issues were here, they were mostly germane to the Colossians' context and not ours. So, are these sorts of ideas still a threat to us in North Carolina in 2022? Well, I think there are three specific ways in which we still see these, this heresy at work. Uh, so I want to look at those three specific ways, and then we'll just ask kind of the final question, what do we do about this, uh, and then we'll be done. First, this heresy is still at work in mysticism that is still around today. This is perhaps, this is me speaking as someone who has been a part of Emmanuel Church and knows many of you, this is perhaps more of a threat to the church at large than to Emmanuel Church, but there are all sorts of modern New Age ways of thinking that seek to infiltrate the church all the time, so it's, it's something to take care with and to be watchful for, even if through the vocabulary we use and the things we emphasize. So maybe it was just circles that I used to run in, uh, Christian circles that I sort of used to be a part of, but I've seen people give a lot more weight to phrases like, I feel the Holy Spirit telling me, then they will to, well, thus says the Lord. Right? Is that something you've encountered in Christian circles? Where there's a lot more equity in someone telling you of a specific personal experience they had with the Holy Spirit telling them something than with sort of the general black and white, boring, uh, thus says the Lord of Scripture. That's mysticism at work. The, the, the mystical com component to our faith can be overemphasized such that things that the Holy Spirit told you outweigh the truths of Scripture. Outright heretics play that game. Um, I, I've had the, really a privilege of having a lot of conversation with, with Mormons over the years, specifically with Mormon missionaries. Uh, many conversations with many Mormons. My wife and I used to go to Book of Mormon studies at our lo the local Mormon church, um, just to kind of learn what they believed and interact better with it. And uh, if you pin a, a Mormon down, metaphorically, if you pin a Mormon down in a corner um, with arguments, and you say, listen, the, the Bible clearly says this. It says A. The Book of Mormon clearly says B. A does not equal B. So how do you say that the Book of Mormon and the Bible go together? How can you say the Book of Mormon is also Scripture with Scripture? And you can bring specific verses in front of them, and here's what they'll say. I've had this said to me multiple times. Well, the Holy Spirit has told me. 
that the Book of Mormon's true and that Joseph Smith is a prophet. And I'll say, what do you mean the Holy Spirit told you? Because the Holy Spirit told me that the Book of Mormon's not true and Joseph Smith's not a prophet. And they'll say, well, there was a burn, this is the exact vocabulary that's used, there was a burning in my bosom. There was the feeling that I have when I think of the Book of Mormon, when I think of Joseph Smith, and I read the Book of Mormon, that this is self-evidently true. The Holy Spirit told me. That, that's heretic language. Now, here's the, sneaky, here's the sneaky thing. It's totally right for a Christian to say, the Holy Spirit has convinced me, has told me, that, that Christ, is, Christ has forgiven me of my sins. The Holy Spirit has communicated those things to me. That's true. Here's the question. Do the, the speakings and the utterances of the Holy Spirit to you coalesce and align with Scripture? And if they don't, well, we've got a problem, friend. So that mysticism, it's definitely at work in the, in the world of heresy, but it's also, again, it sneaks into the back doors of the church. So mysticism is by no means the biggest threat to our church today, I don't think, but it's around, it's subtle, and it deserves attention. I'll mention this as well. I've been in churches where the elements of worship are orchestrated such that the congregation, the, the members of the congregation, me included, feel like they've had a transcendent experience with God. They really feel that. But really, we've all just been manipulated into feeling certain emotions with beautiful music, elaborate light effects, smoke machines, and the like. It's, it's easy to use sensory overload to hype up someone's emotions, and that becomes evident in the fact that the transcendence that was there quickly deflates once the music turns off especially once the service itself is over. Now, these are things that I've seen and experienced myself, and there are ways in which mysticism, sort of hyper-transcendent experiences, try to sneak in. That's been going on for thousands of years. Try to sneak into the back door of the church. Two, another way that this heresy is still active, not only in mysticism, but also in a sort of religious formalism. Here's what I mean by religious formalism. I mean a, a shift away from the central aspects of our faith and an inordinate, of, an inordinate focus on sort of external factors, forms that we use in worshiping God. And it can often manifest itself in sort of odd high church instincts. And this is sort of the opposite of that mystical bent that we looked at a moment ago. There seems to be a trend sort of developing I've heard of just a couple cases of this that are more high profile, uh, but in conversations with friends, I've heard of a lot of sort of rank and file sort of church members where this is happening to, where serious-minded, sincere evangelicals, often reformed evangelicals, will make transitions over to Anglicanism and Catholicism. I don't know if you've seen this happen at all. And, and actually, in articles that I've, I've read from more high-profile people that have done this, they have said, clearly, the traditions of the Anglican and the Catholic churches are, are a plus for them. That there, there's a stability that they feel in the midst of these traditions and these, these strictures. But it must be said, there's no burning of candles, no wearing of robes, no elaborate buildings or ornate decorations that will affect Christ's heart towards sinners. Christ is not moved by such things. And so, we can say even that obligating Christians to these things detracts from Christ. Now, I'm not saying that those things are inherently wrong. Again, it's like Calvin said, the obligation is pernicious. So, similarly to the dependence that some people have on lights and production, 
to feel like they've worshipped God that day, if you depend on a choir or overproduced worship or a specific song or set of songs or being in a specific building to feel like you've worshipped Christ, you should ask yourself, am I really worshipping Christ? The Christian should be easily edified wherever he is, whatever he's doing, because whatever else a Christian has, he always has Christ as his own. So we shouldn't need, we shouldn't depend on forms to feel like we've really worshipped God. That's one way that still, the same heart impulses that led to the Colossian heresy still sort of bubble up in those ways. Finally, legalism. It's a big one. So mysticism, religious formalism, and legalism are ways that this heresy is still at work today. Legalism is a perennial threat to the church, has been for centuries. Believing that performance of certain duties, submission to certain regulations, in order to garner favor before God or establish our piety. R.C. Sproul once said that of all the different ways in which legalism rears its head, quote, the most common and deadly form of legalism is when we add our own rules to God's law and then treat them as divine. Okay, so we add our own rules to what God has said <clears throat> and then treat those rules as what God has said. And that's exactly what's happening in the Colossian context, clearly. And it happens to sincere Christians all over the place. I'll give what may seem like a, a more trivial example. It seems more trivial because it's not heresy. Um, it's, it's February. Maybe... There are many in the room who made some sort of promise or resolution at the beginning of the new year about how much of the Bible we're going to read this year. Uh, it's a common thing to do. I set goals for myself. Maybe you determined to read through the Bible in one year. Or maybe you set a certain number of times a week that you want to read the Bible. Or a certain number of verses or chapters that you want to read each day or each week. There's nothing wrong with these goals. In fact, I think they're great. However, what tends to happen, and I notice this in my own heart, is that you now judge your Christian obedience on your adherence to the standard that you set for yourself, right? So you set a certain quota for how much Bible you want to read in a given day, week, month, or year, and if you fall short of that goal you set for yourself, you somehow get a sense that you're not, not a good Christian anymore. And so what would be helpful to a Christian, in fact, these goals actually cause Christians to take in quite a bit more scripture than they otherwise would, is unable to be helpful because the Christian is so preoccupied with their falling short of the standard they set for themselves. Subtle forms of legalism like this can take a good thing, let me set goals for myself and read more of the Bible, and warp it into a cudgel to beat down your own conscience and rob you of joy. So now, you wake up in the morning and you're rushed out of the house, you didn't read as much as you wanted to, okay, it's just one day, but then maybe that happens a couple times in a week, and suddenly, you have this pall over you that, oh my goodness, I haven't read the Bible like I wanted to, I've fallen short, this is awful, but really, I mean, you read more of the Bible than you would have otherwise, or maybe than you even did last year. And so, uh, something that's a good thing, a, a good standard that we set for ourselves as sort of a goal, we have to remember, that's not divine command. And so we don't judge our Christian success or failure through the standards that we've set for ourselves. So read the Bible, set goals for yourself, and if you fall short, pick yourself up and read the Bible more. Um, how do we avoid these errors? And this is where I'll close. So we've seen what the Colossian heresy is about. We've seen how Paul responded to it. We've seen how some of these things are still alive and active in our day. How do we respond to this? 
Well, to put it simply, get Christ right. If you think rightly about Jesus, you won't embrace these and all other sorts of mistaken notions about Christian living and Christian worship. Know Christ, recognize Christ, and therefore, have a sense for things, even if you can't put your finger on it, even if you hear something and you can't go, hmm, that's perfectly contrary to the hypostatic union of Christ. (laughs) Even if you can't say that, I heard one pastor put it this way, have a really good theological nose. Like be able to go, hmm, uh, something's not right there. Someone says something and you go, I don't know about that. An example of this, um, the Chronicles of Narnia. Maybe some of you have read that. It's one of my favorite series of books. I was once an English teacher and I used to teach the Chronicles of Narnia. In the last volume of the series, The Last Battle, I see some of the teenagers in the church, their eyes are just a glow right now. Um, in the last battle, a battle between the forces of good and evil is going on. It's the very end of the whole world of Narnia. You have Aslan on one side, the great majestic lion. If you've read Narnia, especially if you've read it multiple times, you know there's a feeling associated with Aslan. It's just raw power, but also wisdom and control and mercy and tenderness. Lewis does a fantastic job of picturing Christ, of making you feel a certain way when you read about Aslan. On the other side, uh, you have Tash, the demon god of Narnia, the antithesis of Aslan, the, the, the evil to Aslan's good, and therefore the antithesis of Christ in Lewis's perspective. Now, Aslan is a, a force, yes, of wisdom, of mercy. Also, there's, there's a righteous anger that exists in Aslan. The lion will sometimes let out a deep growl, and you know he's not playing the games right now. And near the very end of the last book, judgment is, final judgment is being dispensed to all the enemies of Aslan, the enemies of Narnia, and Aslan is remaking Narnia into the real and better Narnia. There's one character, Emeth is his name, who's a servant of Tash, has been his whole life, servant of darkness. And when it's his turn to face the judgment of Aslan, the great lion says, quote, Son, thou art welcome. And Emeth says, but I'm not your son. I'm a servant of Tash. And Aslan says, remember, this is supposed to be Christ talking. Child, all the service that thou hast done to Tash, I account as service to me. I threw my book across the room the first time I ever read that. I was furious. I'm sitting there weeping, reading the last battle. It's just this beautiful summary of everything that's happened in Narnia. And then I get to this garbage, and I say, Aslan wouldn't say that. Like, again, there's a feeling you have about Aslan. There's a recognition you have of what Aslan is about. Aslan's not going to look at someone who's hated him his whole life and say, son, come on in. It's not what Aslan does. Aslan growls at those people. And so you, you, you have this sense when you're reading Narnia, it's not Aslan. Aslan, do you, Lewis, do you know who Aslan is? Like, that's not Aslan. Similarly, we should have such a knowledge of Christ. We should know Christ so well. 
We should, there should be a feeling that we have associated with Christ. We just, we, we know him. Not only here, not only here, we know him here. So we know what he says. We know what he thinks about things. Just like you know any good friend you have. And so therefore, someone says something about Christ and you go, Christ wouldn't do that. Christ wouldn't say that. That's, that's not the Jesus I know. How do you know your Jesus is the right one? Well, what other Jesus is there? There's one, and he's here. So we should automatically notice and react to these sorts of things. Finally, Christian, dwell long on your union with Christ. I won't say much about this. Alex has, has done a fantastic job of already unpacking the concept of union with Christ. But all throughout the book of Colossians, Paul is stressing the Christian's union with his Christ. A few ways that Paul says this throughout the book. You have redemption in Christ. All things were created in Christ. All the fullness of God is pleased to dwell in Christ. All the treasures of wisdom and knowledge are hidden in Christ. Christian, you are to walk in Christ. You're to be rooted and built up in Christ. You've died with Christ and were raised up in Christ. Your hope of future glory is Christ in you. Christian, your very life is hidden with Christ in God. These are all ways that just in the small book of Colossians, Paul stresses this truth that Christians are united to their Christ. That when Christ died, you died, Christian. You died to the world. You died to your sin. And guess what? When Christ was raised up, Christian, you were raised up to newness of life and will be raised up again on the last day. The Puritan John Owen said on the believer's union with Christ. This is beautiful. Christ says of the church, at last, bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. I see myself, my own nature in them, so that they are beautiful and desirable to me. Owen continues, therefore from this union, Christ provides from the all fullness of his grace to meet all our needs, to all the ends and duties of spiritual life. From Christ, we derive supply of spiritual life, spiritual sustenance, strength, and perseverance continually. So Christian, it is not man-made religion. It is union with Christ that not only stops the indulgence of the flesh, but secures joy and spiritual vitality for us now and forever. Let's pray. God, thank you for Christ. We are grateful that we look around our lives and we see that we have life, we have breath, we have friends, we have loved ones, we have health. Whatever else we have, we can look at all of our blessings and say, all this and Christ. So Lord, may Christians forever be genuinely, sincerely happy, joyful people because we have Christ and our merits and our efforts buy us nothing in terms of Christ's grace, but that his heart towards sinners is always open and receptive. God, thank you for this. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.